Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co- uh, What is it in Shadow... Uh, what, what is it What is it even called, what we're doing? In Low Life, I'm the boss. Oh, you're the boss in Low Life. I was thinking of the... Uh, what's the system that it's based on? Savage Worlds. Savage Worlds. I was thinking Shadow Worlds or something. I was way off. Is nah, it, man. Does it prescribe I'm McGill, a name? And I'm the boss. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Does it? Yeah, you the boss. What? Uh, does it prescribe any kind of name for the GM in uh, Savage Worlds? Uh, you know, I I only have the low life rules in front of me, but I believe in Savage Worlds. It's just a GM. Well, that's all you really need. I tried to muck about with a Savage Worlds character creator i didn't know what the heck i was doing oh no if i you know i see those different dice all laid next to each other and my assumption is always like it's gonna be like the gi joe rpg but i don't i don't know if that's even true um by the way the thing i was gonna say that i forgot uh before we started recording (laughs) is normally if i'm not talking i just turn my mic off so it doesn't uh pick up sounds but then, you know, maybe people hear the sound of the mic turning off, the click, the pop. I don't know. McGill, it's episode 143. Um, we're in a we're in a whole new age because I, you know, this is the show where we compare and contrast the campaigns of the past. But then you ran out of cam- campaigns to compare and contrast to mine, so you started bringing other RPG products like uh, Low Life, which we're going to cover today. Um, but now we're in an even other thing because now instead of me running out of notes for campaigns to compare and contrast, I have found even more detailed notes in the form of a basic transcript of all that has transpired in the act that I am covering in this portion of the podcast. And uh, it's a whole new age because now I'm, I'm looking right at the source. I can literally see all that happened because they were text-based sessions at that point. I got no notes. You got too many notes. I guess. Yeah, you could say that. I've got some uh, addendums, some some minor notes to to start off at the top of the pod with. I don't know if you've got anything to to kick things off with. Nah, nothing really. Seems like you're kind of distracted today. Am I? I'm I'm a bit high, maybe. Ah, could be. That might be it. Um, oh, and I'm on a new pill, so maybe it's the new pill. I don't know. <laughs> uh. My first thing is that I was listening back to the podcast. And I was talking about uh, my brother's character, Hexakila, his adopted son, Akka. That's wrong. His adopted son name was just Ak. There is a different character named Akka that appears at the end of this act. But um, Akka is not Ak. Ak is his adopted lizard man a uh, son who's been kind of like feral, like living in the wilds for most of his life. Uh, and then Akka is like a water genasi uh, cleric or, or something that ends up uh, helping in a big battle towards the end of this, this act. I got a different note is I've talked before about, um, you know, even 
uh, old uh, Ahoy to the Arconic Arms series. He recently covered uh, 50 cal, like, anti-materiel rifles. Uh, he was talking about the Barrett 50. He even mentioned the one that I have had serving as the Orion rifle for the MPOC in its new incarnation. Uh, he brought it up briefly, the XM500 of that uh, Barrett anti-materiel rifle. But the the question, like, he didn't answer the question for me, and the question I've had and I've brought up on the podcast is, like, whatever happened to that gun? Because it seemed like it was on track to be, like, produced, and then it just kind of disappeared. Like, nobody really talks about it anymore. I don't know, whatever. Turns out... Um, from what I understand, uh, in terms of military contracts, there is some lack of fondness for bullpup models, of which uh, the XM500 is. It's that kind where you have sort of, uh, I don't know, it's it's more pushed towards the back in terms of its design, is the best I can describe it without uh, explaining the parts or, 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 you know, having a picture. Um, you know, the... the Steyr Og is a classic bullpup. I don't know if you know that one. That's the old Yeah, yeah. It has gun. a very unique look, that one. Yeah, so you can see, if you compare the XM500 uh, to that, you can see sort of like the similarities in the design. But the point is, um, this uh, rifle, it never got picked up. And, and so it seems to be that uh, militaries just, like, didn't, weren't really into that model. But then there's another gun that is, like, the same type of gun um, and has the same type of design uh, but is different but is, like, much more popular on civilian markets, I guess. Uh, it's called the GM6 Lynx. GM6 Lynx, like the XM500, I'll tell you, there's no frontline girl of the XM500, but there's one of the GM Lynx. She has a pet Lynx. That's those anime waifus that are the guns. The, the guns <laughs> that are the anime waifus. Remember that? Yeah, man. That still cracks me up. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, I, I wasn't sure about this, so I was hesitant to say it, but I'm pretty sure the thing about a bullpup design is that you have the clip behind the trigger rather than in front of it um, is kind of your, your classic uh, thing you got going on there. That's certainly what's going on with the XM500. And the Styrog. Okay, cool. So that's probably what I was trying to say. That's definitely what I meant when I said, like, more pushed back. Uh, it's just that, like, I don't know. I also think of, like, the stock is very... I don't know. I want to say something wrong about guns. I look like an idiot. <laughs> uh so mcgill tom did, i guess am i just jumping into my thing or do we want to talk about your thing or or what are we doing here uh well let me just reiterate for the listeners what i'll be doing later in the rpg danger room on our last episode i started covering the rpg low life which is based off of the savage worlds rpg system and then on this one, we're going to dive even deeper into low life. I gave sort of a, an overview, but uh, on this episode, I'll be talking a bit about 
the lore of lowlife, the races and classes of lowlife, and maybe we can even start or even complete character creation depending on how long it all yeah. takes. And uh, I do get the sense that uh, there will be a lot more lowlife in at least one more episode, if not two, because there's a lot to cover here. And this uh, this is the kind of thing, much like Fleshscape, this, this setting, I think, really speaks to... Uh, a lot of things that you and I enjoy out yeah. of an RPG. Maybe we should design a Fleshscape uh, campaign sometime or something on the show. <laughs> um, Maybe we should design a blank campaign. It's like the ubiquitous Tom Lando quote. Hey, man, if we don't do it on the show, I'm just going to be doing it on the side with ChatGPT. It's my new That's thing. Right. Uh, <laughs> I can... But yeah, let's get into Coyote's Ages. All right, all right. So um, we're jumping on to the operation following the one that focused around Quest for Spordome. That was, uh, God, it wasn't Operation Birth and Death, was it? It was the one before that. Uh, operation Through Glass. Yes, I man, I have the notes right in front of me. I could have known that. Uh, the point is we're jumping on to Operation Birth and Death from Operation Through Glass. Having completed Operation Through Glass, uh, I gave them the opportunity to rest upon returning to Omega Base. Then after breakfast the following day, which this is this is maybe a, a note, is like sometimes I'd play out the breakfast. Sometimes I'd ask what Hex made. Sometimes I just, in this case, I just kind of skipped it. I was like after breakfast the following day, they gave their reports of the operation to Coyote. Coyote st states that they got no immediate work ahead of them, and they're dismissed with at least the rest of the day to do with as they please. And uh, so uh, Chantel, Gent, uh, went first, decided that they were going to write a letter to their college uh, and include a package of some of the strange uh, items that they have um, looking for information. Basically, there's been this recurring thing of like these strange demonic related objects and objects causing madness and whatnot. And so Gent decides to do a little private send away to her college to send some pieces away for analysis. And uh, then uh, they also uh, donate about 500 gold pieces to uh, the person who's taking care of their uh, rust monster, their their rust monsters, uh, ketchup, relish, and mustard. Um, and then they spent the rest of the time just kind of like chilling out, uh, eavesdropping. Uh, Hex uh, was just uh, counting his gold, hanging around the the kitchen at the on the Omega base, um, probably adding a tremendous level of quality to the offerings that day we decided uh we'd already covered connor uh depositing the magic items from before like the magic resistant uh half plate so he took a bit of a lazy day um what was funny so i don't know if i even mentioned this uh, it was a minor thing is when they got their task to go out and get the uh brain cap mushrooms they ran into uh, a familiar elf while they were on Omega Base. Or, uh, yeah, I think it must have been at Omega Base. I don't know where else it would have been. Um, so do you remember they got an alchemy jug for a guy 
who said that like he said that the alchemy jug was like a family heirloom that had been lost and they were like keeping their eyes out for it and eventually they found it um it was on the when when they were doing the last act in the octopus they bring it back to I do to remember him. the alchemy jug yeah they they bring it back to him but then I also let you in on the secret that they never figured out that this guy Vin he's a he's an elf he's one of the crystal guard elves he's um he's just a thief he it's not his family's alchemy jug or anything it's that was just like something he wanted uh and he got them to get it for them and so they ran into vin again before this operation and he had asked them to get him brain cap mushroom samples as well and what's funny is they had like fully forgotten about this um i have this little scene where it's like around lunch you run into vin the elf from the octopus who asked you to get him a brain cap mushroom sample he says i heard the mission was a success were you able to secure a sample for me um and uh so so hex or, or connor whoever alex is playing in the moment he says we were able to secure some samples yes uh, I believe Therian has them at the moment. And I have Vin being like, oh, uh, do you do you th- think you could still get one for me? And he's like, I'm, I'm sure I could have a word with him real quick. And in brackets, he's like, shit, I completely forgot we need to get extras for this guy. And Chantel's like, yep. And the fact is, like, this guy's just uh, some scammer. Like, they don't actually need to get this for this guy. Although... There was a decent prize at the end of this quest, which is that if they got him the brain cap mushroom samples, I think he is able to supply them with like an old Crystal Guard map of Agalock from a time when Crystal Guard was adjacent to Agalock when it like, uh, or, or, or sorry, when the Arctopus was adjacent to Agalock when it like latched on to Drail. Because then they would have been around and they would have mapped out the forest. And that map may be out of date, but it would still be, like, pretty good intel for the Empok, I think. Um, so because of this, this ends up with, like, a little downtime detour where uh, I'm just like, how do you, how do you want to proceed? And they decide that they got to go find Therian, and last that they've... Uh, like, like their best guess is that last they saw me was in the labs in the armory because that's where they delivered the brain caps to. Um, Gent was with Hex and uh, just sort of sneaking along for uh, the benefit of having their skills, basically. And uh, so I say, like, in their investigations a bit earlier, it becomes clear to them that the busiest area of the base today is the labs. There's a lot of people going to and from there and not being at all secretive about it and lots of attention being paid to them. Um, And this is, like, this is because a lot of focus is being put on, uh, like, studying these brain caps, but also ramping up sort of the war effort going forward with the operations in Agalock. Like, people are moving supplies to and from the armory and, like, moving weapons en masse and whatnot. Um, So they know that, like, the labs and the armory are, like, the place to start looking. Um, So they go to the labs, and there's Wenton, uh, Elianu, the... Wenton's match that they matched the two of them through the Chessie's Cupids. And then there's Al Samasath, and they're all busy 
analyzing the samples that they brought back. Uh, Hex approaches them and is like, hey guys, how's it going with the brain fungi? And Al Samasath is like, ah, well enough. It's fascinating stuff. And uh, meanwhile, gents looking around, uh, they're like, do I see any samples anywhere else? Um, meanwhile, Al Samasath keeps talking. He's like, it's just, uh, and he leans over to Hex, lowers his voice. He's like, it's hard to tell if they can uh, solve our problem, our, our special problem with the parasites, I mean. Uh, which is a tricky little thing because al has one of these parasites man he's saying that maybe the brain cap mushrooms won't work to make a vaccine against the ministry parasites well he would but know it's all a ruse. because yeah man he's the ministry parasite man uh so uh jen is looking for the samples and i say like it looks like they've all been gathered here in the labs uh, Hex is like, ah, well, that's that's something that be, might be a bit tricky to test, wouldn't it? Um, and, like, just to go over the process of, like, they escorted Therian back to the base. He had the specimens. He gave them to Axel the goblin, who was overseeing the operation alongside Arn the human, who was overseeing the southern coast scouting ops. And then they turned them over to the lab. So there's sort of, like, it's it's understandable that they had maybe lost track of the brain caps, but they've like sort of got track of them again now. And, uh, Al Samasath is like, yeah, exactly. And he starts consulting some charts. Um, Gent starts looking around, uh, seeing what else is around the lab in terms of like general equipment and stuff. Uh, X keeps talking, shooting the, shooting the wind with, uh, shooting the breeze with, uh, Al Samasath saying like, you know, having met these myconids in the forest, I'm starting to get my own suspicions about these brain fungi. Do you think I could grab one for uh, some research? And uh, I mentioned to Gent that there's uh, lots of crates and bottles, either empty or full of a variety of fluids, lab equipment, file folders, file cabinets, bins, shelves, etc., and uh, Al Samasath is like, well, yeah, but uh, be be careful. As far as we can tell, and based on Therian's report, apparently if you eat more than one, it'll do more harm than good. Which is like, you know, if Al Samasath thinks that uh, Hex is asking for more of them, he's got to put that disclaimer of like, if you have more than one of these before a long rest, then you overdose and you gain madness rather than curing it. Here, we got uh, Gent feigns slipping and knocks some crates full of empty bottles over to create a distraction and uh the, the chantelle went went out of her way to say i'm gonna do this even if we don't need to and uh <laughs> wenton and elianu turn over at the turn to look at the commotion with looks of frustration while al samasath simply looks over giving an opportunity for hex to grab a sample off the desk uh before before him without al even noticing and gent looks to everyone and says there was a bee and alex types in snatch and uh went and elianu approached to deal with the mess went and says in a tired voice can we please clear the floor a bit here and elianu steps around gent to get a broom and a bin from nearby and uh hex is like right maybe another time and they shuffle out and al turns back to hex and says ah yeah maybe now is not such a good time eh and uh, Gent apologizes, scurries out, and went and asks Gent, well, did you get it? And Gent says, I always get it, and then winks. Little, little smooth move with a fake bee. 
went inside and says good and then <laughs> starts helping Eliane clean up. Vin's not far away when they leave, eagerly awaiting their return with the sample. Uh, they give him the the sample, and uh, yeah, eventually, it's sort of like, he, he basically says, like, thanks, this is going to help in the long run, um, but you'll hear back from me, and when they hear back from it, it's they've gotten this uh, map sent to them. Um, they also warn him that if he eats too much, he'll uh, go crazy. Um, McGill, let's jump over to your side of things. How's that sound? Already? Maybe That's jump back quick. to my thing later. Sure. Uh, oh, we're oh, so we're gonna like hop back and forth. This is Maybe. new. You're right. A whole we'll new try format. It out. We'll try it out. So, uh, here we are in the RPG Danger Room once again, and uh, talking, as I said, about low life based on the Savage Worlds RPG system. Uh, low life, written, designed, and illustrated by Andy Hop, and Savage Worlds, created by Shane Lacey Hensley. And uh, on our last episode, I mostly focused on Savage Worlds, just sort of giving a brief overview of how different mechanics work, how, you know, the attribute system work, and what kind of dice you roll. And I did make some comparisons to Essence 20, because there are a few similarities here and there. Like, if you level up a skill, for example, the value of the die that you roll for that skill increases, you know, from a d4 to a d6 to a d8, and so on. Does that die add to a different die, or is that just the die you roll? believe that is just the die you roll. So that's the difference between that and Essence 20 that I wasn't sure about. Yeah, I believe that is just the die you roll, and then you might get a bonus to the roll, but it's not like you start with a number and then add the die to it. It's funny because now I'm starting to realize, like, all the systems that, like, sort of go into Essence 20. Like, you've got your... your rising die from savage worlds but then essence 20 you know the 20 you've still got the d20 like those rising die add to the d20 but you've also got the skill specialties that you have in world of darkness you've got a little bit of everything in there yeah it's a bit of a, a bit of a smorgasbord um but before we even get into the mechanics of low life Let's talk a bit more about the setting. I'm trying to remember what I covered last time, uh, but maybe a good place to start is right near the front of the book in a chapter called A Brief History of Slime. And this gives this gives a an overview of the different eras of the low life RPG, and then also uh, gives some important names to things. Uh, I'll start with the important names as an example. Um, there's a box here on page seven of the source book. Uh, the annoy things of Awfulmire pit stench. And note that a lot of the text in Low Life seems to have a thick, like, New York accent. It's Mother Oith. And these are the annoy things, right? Um, so days and months and crap like that. The days of the week are Spoon Day, Moon Day. 
Spoon Day, Moon Day, Tubes Day, Wednesday, Borg's Day, Fried Egg, and Splatter Day. Oh, man. Fried Egg? Fried Egg. Borg's Day. Thank, 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 thank goodness it's Fried Egg. Hell yeah. And, and then I, I really, I really love this. The months of the year. One uary, two uary, three uary, four uary, five uary, six uary, eight uary, nine tember, ten tember, uh, uh, wait, what is it? It's a lember. Man, my my copy is it's not eleven ber. It looks like it's eleven eleven noon. My copy's too low res to read it, and then twelve tember. I don't know why 11 is different. I, you know, I, not to go off on a tangent here, Tom, but I kind of wish that uh, we named the months of the year this way because uh, the freaking Caesars, they screwed it all up. They messed it up. They didn't have any slime on their side. Yeah, I can't remember. Do you remember if it was Julius or Augustus? One of them wanted the month named after him to be in a sunny time. And so everything got be, mixed around. It'd be Julius for July. Well, but it could be Augustus for August, right? Yeah, I can't true. remember which. Um, but that's that's the reason, folks, why October, you know, you figure Octo meaning eight, it would be the eighth month, but October is the tenth month. And then like November, Nov, nine, it's deck. Deca meaning 10, but it's the 12th month. It's all because of those damn Caesars. They threw it all into chaos. This is all kind of good because you're talking about passage of time. And meanwhile, over in my game, we got kind of a passage of time going on because there's basically a few days of downtime between these operations uh, that are like the next thing would be the players covering that and what they do with that downtime. What Um, they did on Friday. Yeah, what they did on Friday and whatnot. Um, And I guess, like, if I was going to name these days, like, the first day would be, like, Intel's Day, and one of the later days would be, like, Army's Day. Because what happens is, like, at first, things are pretty quiet around the base, and, like, it's mostly just people, like, analyzing the intel they've got and and the the mushrooms and whatnot. But then, over the next three days, uh, Gent keeps snooping around and seeing what they can, and a bunch of new VIPs arrive at the base, and it's mostly high-ranking members of the Draelic army, such as Com- Gog Commander Gog, the Ogre, and Morgar, the Orc. Do they have months named after them? Nah, nah, but man, that'd be a cool feature of Drail thing is name name the months and stuff after like major characters. It'd be pretty great. Like the the characters from Mpox Finest as they slip into legend. Yeah, you or could name so, like a season or a, or a month after them. Yeah, I could definitely see the Mpox Finest members and then like uh al's aces like like our Stormblast kendor he's gotta have one right he's like a high priest yeah yeah and Stormblast, gonna... you'd think it would be like a fall or winter month yeah right? if anybody's gonna storm be blastuary the... <laughs> if, if anybody's gonna be renaming the months it's gonna be uh our Stormblast kendor so uh a note here about the passing of time we're talking about time and uh, here's a note on how time passes in low life. 
Uh, and I will, I should, I should have said this off the top, but a disclaimer, low life really loves poop jokes. <laughs> There's a lot of poop jokes in ah, this. Ah, poop joke. The moon. Poop jokes. The moon is referred to as the big butt in the sky. Ah, uh, moon's uh, day. See, I wasn't, e- I was already wondering if moon's day referred to the moon or a butt. And or a butt. It's, it's both. both. Um, and it says here, folks used to record the phases of the moon to note the passage of months, and you can do it that way if you want, but there's nothing regular about the big butt in the sky. It wavers erratically across the celestial dome in a random and eccentric manner, showing its massive pimpled cheeks day or night, or not at all according to its own agenda. The moon may once have been a valuable tool for celestial reckoning, but now it's just a big cheesy rump, and if you want to know what day it is, you gotta buy a calendar. Well, I'll tell you what, is uh, after Operation Through Glass, before we get to Operation Birth and Death, we, they actually, after a few days of just like idling on standby on the base, Coyote finally contacts them and lets them know that there's going to be no MPOC operations planned in the immediate future. They get to take the next several weeks on leave as they please. So then we get to just uh, make up... Uh, scenes that's all just about uh whatever they do in that downtime do we want to talk about what they do during the downtime or should i proceed i guess maybe while i like are we off the topic of the passage of time and months and uh, whatnot? We certainly we're certainly off the topic in, of how time is charted in low life and next i'll talk about the different eras of low life's history mm. yeah let's hear about the different eras of low life's history all right, so um, in this setting, the idea is that it is set on Earth, now called Mother Oith. Uh, it is the far, far flung post-cataclysm, post-apocalyptic future. And there was a period of time where like every cataclysmic apocalyptic event that you can imagine took place plagues meteors climate catastrophe nuclear war the works and uh and that is that era is like the the middle of the historical timeline of low life and so here are the the names of the different eras uh of low life there's a really really long time ago which is called a really really long time ago and very little is known of a really really long time ago and then sooner than that there is a really long time ago and not much is known about a really long time ago either but then as we get closer to the present of the rpg there's way back in the day and what happened in way back in the day well big ass monsters wandered the oith and then there's just back in the day and that's the human race came and it came to the oith a time of peace and harmony so way back in the day is is dinosaurs back in the day is our present now when the the human race with two o's the human race ruled over the oith in a time of peace and harmony but then then came this cataclysmic tumultuous apocalyptic era called the time of the flush the downfall of the human race when all of the apocalypses occurred and then this is what i'm talking about with poop jokes right the time of the flush is when all the the humans get flushed down the drain and the time after that's called after the wipe <laughs> no more human race and the ancestors of the characters of low life got their butts moving then yesteryear 
was a t it was a, a, a period was called yesteryear, and that's what's known as the rise of the lowly. At this point, the human race was just gone. The planet was was destroyed, but uh, this is where all the ancient predecessors start to rise, you know, uh, over a span of like gazillions of millennia, the forefathers of low life evolved or devolved or spawned. I got a question. Yeah. Who showed up first? Who showed up first? I don't actually have a set answer for you because I haven't read up on every single race, but I do know that over a period of quite literally millennia, in the the era known as yesteryear that's when the ra the races of low life came into effect uh the ancestors See, of those i want to say that i suspect that the croaches rose to power before the cream fillions because cro cockroaches are closer to evolving to sentience than uh twinkies and but, it would certainly, I mean, that certainly would make sense. And I feel like once we actually get into the nitty gritty of the races, we're probably going to learn something like that. Because, of course, you know, uh, cockroaches sort of notoriously can survive a nuclear blast. It would make sense that the croaches, the, the ancestors of the croaches had one foot in the so pre-flush pre era. So smart money's on the croaches for first, uh, first race out the gate. Yeah, smart money's on the croaches. And this is where, uh, the you know, not only are these races of lowlife uh, evolving and spawning and, uh, and starting to take over the oith, but there's also uh, uh, the rediscovery of arcane arts, in particular, the, the magic system in lowlife is called hocus pokery. So the, the rediscovery of Hocus Pokery uh, returned to Oith by mysterious inhabitants of a lost continent called Eglantis. Um, those that wield magic... Oh shit, fried, fried egg! Uh, yeah, I guess, the, I guess fried egg, the day fried egg, is named after Eglantis. Are you, and, into, are you into Atlantis stuff? You I know, mean, it's, it's it, all... It, into as in what? It's just like, you know... It, you know, I talked in the past about how, like, I'm not, uh, I've not in the past been into using giants as monsters, you know? And there's a real specific, like, aesthetic of, like, Atlantis, like, that lost city. Like, there's, like, an Atlantis standing in, like, almost every major role playing game I find. The Heck Atlantis yeah. I mean, there's a whole sort, there's a whole source book for it in Rifts. Yeah. There's a Atlantis in World of Darkness, there's Atlantis in Scion. Uh, there is, um, oh yeah, in, in Pathfinder, there's, uh, Aslant, A Aslant, which is the Atlantis equivalent. And, like, um, they were Atlantis, the Atlantis Guild is one of the main factions, the Atlantean Empire in Mage Knight. And, like, I always, like, so, uh, Udom Crossbowman, the first, the number one, the, the first ever, like, number one in the first series of Mage Knight figures is an Atlantean Empire unit. And so whenever I'm coming back to that guy, which is often, I'm looking and seeing, like, oh, yeah, he's, like, this Atlantis guild, and they're a whole Atlantis kind of revisioning uh, fantasy thing. And yeah, are you, like, 
when you see Atlantis, when you see like a fantasy analog for Atlantis, are you like, oh, cool? Or are you just like, ah, whatever? It's all just underwater or whatever. I mean, I'm, I, I, would, I don't know if I hit either extreme. Atlantis is pretty cool. And I mean, forget it, Jack. I, it's on the waterfront. I, I do think that uh, sort of those, those mythical or legendary or folkloric uh, floating islands are all just, you know, they're kind of neat stories. Like High Brazil is another interesting one. Um, and I guess it all depends on how it's used. There was a game that I once played. Uh, what was it called? I think it was it was Risk, but it, I think it was Risk Godstorm, I think is the variation. I have one of those uh, fictional Osprey books in my room right here. Oh, it's that's the neat. Wars of Atlantis. That's pretty neat. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, Risk Godstorm, I think is what it was called. And you're playing, everybody's, instead of playing as like nations, you're playing as Greek gods with different territories. And Atlantis is one of the territories. And one of the cards that you can pull from the Risk deck uh, just flat out sinks Atlantis and kills everyone on it. I like a mechanic like that. Um, I'm also, this has also got me thinking of, uh, did you ever read the Dinotopia books when you were a kid? Yeah, man, we had all those in hard copy around this place, all them pictures and everything. Yeah, I still got the first one, and uh, I mean, Dinotopia has a kind of Atlantis vibe to it. I think that one's pretty cool. Yeah, that's true. Man, that's, that's also, I'm like, like, I think I'm more than Atlantis, I'm into the idea of, like, fantasy Pangea, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, going back that's... to that primal stuff, like, when you talk about Dinotopia, that gets me into that sort of, like, primal stuff and, like, there's a man. I'm I, I'm actually surprised I haven't talked about it yet. I found um, so there is a a supplement for New World of Darkness or Chronicles of Darkness as it's called now, uh, called Dark Eras that just like brings in different like historical settings that you can play World of Darkness in and gives like setting details for all of them and like how different monsters might manifest in them. And the one that I thought was coolest was called The Shattered World, um, which takes place like basically on Pangea with like this Neolithic uh, culture. Um, and like, I don't know if it's actually literally Pangea. I think it might just be like the... Uh, world of darkness version of Pangea, but whatever the case, the idea is that you're like a Neolithic, uh, culture and all they have, like there's no vampires yet, but every tribe by necessity needs like, uh, like a spiritual leader that is basically a mage that is known as a wise one. And then, so there's mages, but they are like proto mages called wise ones. And they have like different abilities and their whole process is different. Um, and then there's werewolves. There's werewolves, but like werewolves are more fully just wolf people. And like, since the real world is so close to the spirit world at that point in its development, uh, the werewolves are just like full on authorities of nature. Uh, and it's pretty crazy. Man, that is pretty cool. I also like the the fantasy Pangea. I mean, it 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 sort of in my mind kind of blends together with like almost like uh, Conan the Barbarian kind of you know like tribal wasteland stuff in an Man, age where the I... the weapons are made of iron and and uh, there's magic and it all has a very 
kind of primal feel to it. Hey, when even I, when like, I saw even like when, the show Primal. When I saw Spear pick up that sword, I thought, oh shit, he's turned into Korgoth of Barbaria. Yeah, that's right. Um, anyway, all that to say, you know, it depends on how it's handled. But in general, I think that stuff's pretty cool. I like a lost mythical civilization, whether it's on an island or, or whether it's just, uh, you know, ancient Earth and the cavemen ride dinosaurs. I like all so, that stuff. So what's this Atlantis like? It's got something to do with magic coming back? Uh, yeah, that's, that's right. That's World of Darkness. Like, World of Darkness. So in world, New World of Darkness, Atlantis was like sort of the world before mages fucked every, everything up. It's like we used to have magic and everybody was doing great. And then a bunch of mages were like, we want to be gods and climb the celestial ladder. And then they were like, fuck everybody else. They can't climb the celestial ladder. And everybody else was trying to get up and they destroyed the celestial ladder. And now we have the world as it is with a bunch of assholes running the show and everything kind of sucks. And uh, it's because of those assholes, those magic assholes run the show. Um, but Atlantis refers to like back before that, back when it was just mages doing mage stuff and everybody benefiting. I haven't gotten to the point in the source book yet uh, where it details whether Eglantis is still around or not, but from the summary in the history of Slime, I get the impression that Eglantis resurfaced during the time of the Flush and bestowed upon the Oith the, the hocus pokery and arcane arts, so it may have sunk once again after the Flush, or maybe it's still around. Um, and what happened... Uh, as a result of the return of Hocus Pokery, is uh, those who could do magic, those who could master Hocus Pokery, began to wield it and, and held all the power. They enslaved and enthralled those who had no magic. And then to combat the Hocus Pokers and the Smellcasters, the common folk of yesteryear armed themselves with weapons such as swords or pooflingers, <laughs> and set out in search of ancient lore and lost treasures, and this new age of adventure and exploration came to be known as the Rise of the Lowly. And that brings us up to the most recent era, which is called Recently. And, uh, Man, and I really want to make a croach, but also now I'm thinking, like, maybe I should do a character that's, like, based on creepy freaks. Oh, yeah, I mean... Tom, why not? More than one. That seems like the kind of thing you would do. Um, I should note, though, on the subject of croaches, this history that I've been reading to you was written by a croach named Yemeni Sousberger. That's, and, that's right. And what happened recently? Yemeni Sousberger made a sandwich. And the book includes Yemeni Sousberger's sandwich recipe. So here it is. You want to make a Yemeni Sousberger croach sandwich? You slather three pickled slog nuggets with grizzled groom's old-fashioned booze and poo sauce. You top it with an old rag and serve it on a hoagie bun with sliced onions and circuspy nuts. Croaches eat some weird shit. That's what it says in the footnotes. So those, that's, that is the brief history of slime that brings us up to the current era, known as recently, which is when our game will take place. And I guess maybe this is a good time to, to hand the baton over to you. Uh, for talking about um, my 
what's going on on my thing. I just yeah. ended up looking for uh, creepy freaks, trying to find out what the name <laughs> of the bug spray guy is. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they call out his name, but I don't have time to go watch the whole cartoon right now. Um, yeah, so I guess the thing is, um, we get to this point where it's just like they have a whole month of downtime before, like, while the war effort is gearing up. Coyote explains that the next few weeks are going to be dedicated to sending scouts deep into Agalock to find and scope out the human supremacist kingdom that they've heard about in their ops. At the same time, he confirms that the Draelic army is officially being brought in, while the next month or so will likely only be a period of preparation and mobilization for them, this overall Agalok campaign will likely be changing hands in leadership between the Empok and the army between now and when they return. So we've done these first few operations, really just these first two operations, the one with the goblins and then the one with the Mykonids, and now we know enough. We know that there's this human supremacist settlement within Agalok, and it's like, we're going to war. It's another military campaign. It's it's ramping up. Um, so I have uh, Hex receive the uh, letter from Vin with the uh, the map of uh, Agalok. It's uh, 30 years old, but it's still, uh, you know, when uh, Hex sees it, he's like, hell yeah. He shows it to Coyote and the Empok Brass. They're pretty happy to to map it up, and they start marking up their own map and start updating everything. Um, also, Chantel said, you gave a treasure map away. Gent will not speak to you for one whole day. <laughs> um. Although I also said that maybe this is why Hex took it, took it back to his bunk to open it. Handle with care or keep away from Gent. To which Gent said, a whole day. Um, <laughs> to, uh, Alex also said that that label might as well just read soon to be Gents. So they each get a month of, of downtime. Um... And then a bonus meanwhile scene at the end, I told them, which uh, I don't even know what I was going for there. Uh, but Gent goes back to the college to get some updates on uh, the things. Um, also goes to check in. So basically, I kind of like mapped it out for them um, because we weren't like totally sure about Gent's background. Like Gent. Sir Chantel said at this point, like they they're not sure that they have any background established except that, you know, they're they had relatives who had been enslaved by the Nightside Eclipse, like they were a freedom fighter for the Kenku against the Nightside Eclipse. So there wasn't too much for them to work with there, and so we started to kind of build it out. And uh, so one thing that they said was like they would design weird traps out of scrap metal, like mouse traps. Um, but I broke down some offers for Gent, the f which were, uh, back to college. What is the, what do they do at college? Do they do an alumni seminar? Do they do graduate studies? What's their plan? Um, are they going to check in with the shadows that, that guild of assassins that they join? Not necessarily assassins, but like covert operatives. And then like, um, 
maybe the other thing I offered was like classic scavenging. Like maybe with their newly liberated family, they go out and they just go like junk, jump scavenging, classic Kenku uh, pastime. And uh, so let Gent think on it, jump over to Hex. Um, first thing Hex wants to do is drop in on Ak. So uh, Ak is studying at the uh, Crystal Guard Academy. And this is where we decided officially that Ak is training to be a wizard. So if Ak appears as a character in the future, then Ak is going to be a wizard. Um, I said that Ak would be finding the school challenging as his literacy is not as proficient as his speaking. The school was accommodating. His teachers would report that while he has no inherent magical ability, his resolve is evident and he should be able to flourish in his studies as easily as any other student if he keeps his mind to it. Basically, I'm writing Ak's report card for the downtime for Hex. Um, Ak's mood seems... I gotta say, every time you say Ak, I just think of the Martians from Mars Attacks. Uh, Axe's mood seems good. He's not having an amazing time, but he's enjoying the comforts of the academy and the challenge of his studies. He's in the process of mastering the cantrip light. Um, uh, Hex, uh, cooks, uh, cooks him up a meal and, uh, he asks that, uh, Hex make him some cookies for him before he leaves. He, uh... Uh, using some of the octopus goodies that Hex has, he makes him some crystal cookies, some magic cookies. Magic cookies. Um, then, the thing I want to know was uh, Noah, the like duck avian uh, spouse, basically like Hex's significant other and effectively... Noah, like, Noah's the duck in the suit, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so the question was, like, does he spend time, the time off living with her? And if so, where would they be? Um, I was thinking that she could live on or near the base, or she could be in Crystal Guard, or she could be in a Deathland city like Decima, um, or could have even moved back into their old village on the Oasis border, in the Oasis on the border. But then apparently I'd forget, forgotten that. Uh, Alex is like, well, remember last time I worked at a restaurant in Stormgate? I'm like, uh, oh, yeah. He established a prestige restaurant in Stormgate, and so he decided it was time for him and Noah to, to make their debut in the city and give up the old farm and buy a big house in the big city. Not that he had a farm to give up, I don't think. I think he's just, the idea is like, you know, move to the big city, get a big old place in Stormgate, um, we switch back to Gent, and uh, Gent decides to go scrapping with her tribe. And uh, I, my only follow-up question was, does Gent come from a big immediate family or a small immediate family? And uh, uh, Gent's response was, everybody is considered family, so it isn't really established who is actually biological. It's a tech hippie commune. commune. And... Uh, so I said uh, Gent was celebrated on their return for all the things they'd sent back to their tribe already without even getting into their newest devices or deliveries. Um, it was a pretty great time, though. 
all their life they'd had to be on guard when they did this and everyone had to be careful not to get captured or killed on any excursion into the Deathlands. But now the threat of the Nightside Eclipse was essentially gone and there are huge battlefields teeming with goodies of all sorts. Weapons, ammunitions, personal valuables all lost or discarded on the battlefield. Um, so it's like a Kenku's field day. They get to go out in the field and uh, just start like going out gathering all the scavenged materials they can, converting some of the weaponry and traps into everyday items. End up making, uh, I decided that they ended up making pipe guns, like in uh, Fallout 4. You ever see those? Man, I got a great picture here, actually, that I used to show them to Chantel, so. Haven't played Fallout 4. I bought it in the Steam winter sale, though, so I'll get there. Hey, those are pretty cool. The old pipe guns. You're going to see a lot of them if you play Fallout 4, Neat. my friend. Um, yeah, I also... Um, I have a little note here. I'm not sure what I was going here for. So I said, some of your tribe mates have adjusted to freedom better than others. Some remind you have some remind you that you have the brain caps and make you wonder if you could be if they could be used to treat your kin that didn't make it out of captivity with their minds fully intact luckily the majority of their tribe is well and happy to enjoy the benefits of time. i think this is an interesting detail but it's odd to me that i said this because um the brain caps were like a really specialized resource i think that they still are like the party in the game I'm running now just used their last brain cap. Like in these campaigns where abyssal madness becomes a greater and greater threat, brain caps, which are able to just like freely cure madness once per day, are so useful. And um, so the thing is, having this note, it's good. Like it's a good setting note, I think, but it seems off to me because it almost. It's like encouraging the players to use a resource that's actually really valuable for something that they don't need to. Like, if I hadn't said that, it wouldn't even create the need to get some brain caps for her tribe. And I feel like, like, I, as far as I know, we never actually followed through on that. Like, there was never anything about getting brain caps to help people with PTSD in their Kenku tribe. But, like... I don't know. It just strikes me as odd that I, I made that note, although I, I do still think it's a cool note. What do you think? It's a cool note, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Like, do you, do you? I guess the question is, if I have to put this as a question, it's like, which is better? The, the importance of having like a cool flavor note for the setting or does like pacing the game properly so that the players don't use important resources on like the wrong things this is an interesting like uh sort of prong that you've presented me with because i feel like those two things aren't quite related i don't know man i go by the rule of cool um and i'm because i'm i'm detailing the rpg low life i guess i'm inclined to say like include all the cool notes because that's clearly what the designers of low life prioritize yeah i just don't like like one way to get around this would to just make the brain caps easier like more abundant and like make it easier like just say like 
oh yeah, sure, you can get a bunch of brain caps and send them to your people. But the the thing is that like they shouldn't feel abundant like that. It should be like when they go to battle, it's like everybody gets a very specific brain cap ration to make sure they don't go crazy in the battle. And like I thought that like that is also a really cool note later when it comes up is like when they're in battle and every squad has like a ration of brain caps and it's like it's because if you stay too long in this forest you're gonna go insane and so we've made this like special shroom antidote for you to carry around in case of that like in in case of abyssal madness eat shroom um yeah i don't know it's it's so so when you talk about like what is the trick I'm having to balance here? I think that's it is having the issue of I like, do I put, it feels like saying that thing about some of the Kenku basically having PTSD. It's almost like I'm, uh, baiting the, the players to use their brain caps on like something that, is like not going to pay off the way that it would if they kept them for combat or like for when they go crazy. I don't know. I, I think I, I'm not, was having trouble phrasing that there, but anyway, um, gent provided their tribe with some write-ups of weaponry and machines that they'd seen. Uh, so that could include their, their dirt bike and all that. Um, and the ones that, have been able to put their minds to some kind of engineering. We're excited to try and make something of their reports. And then, uh, gent, uh, told them tales of their travels, uh, like the rust monsters and myconids. And, uh, they gave them a verbal recount of, uh, Basically, they get they uh, throw back and forth the whole oral history of their Kenku tribe. The tribe was mesmerized by uh, gents tales great and thrilling as they were and one thing they noticed is perhaps the most popular item scavenged in terms of everyone having one is canteens having such water contain having such handy water containers has actually been a real boon to the tribe and so that is uh, something that gent notes and it's something it's kind of funny it's like i'm saying like Oh yeah, you can make weapons and and traps and everything, and you can make pipe guns. But actually, you know what they really want is canteens, just something to carry water around with. It's, it's, it's the Deathlands, man. Um. Uh. So we jump back to Hexakila, who goes back to Stormgate from the Mages College in Crystal Guard, and uh, actually, uh, uh, Alex is like. Uh, having trouble remembering. So he asks, how is Stormgate doing these days? And I'm like, well, better than it's been in some time. It is now ruled by Prince Foob of Goblin Town and it's going through a sort of cultural renaissance. Um, and uh, he says, excellent. Gone are the days of Aku. So he heads back there, probably via a little portal jumping. From there, he inquires about properties around town and he sees Prince Foob and... Uh, he uh, basically is looking for property in Stormgate, and he's, he's friends with Prince Foob, so he maybe get a good word in. And I'm like, hmm, you're looking for a house? They're like, nothing too grandiose, but not a hovel, hovel either. And I say, I think I have the perfect place. 
Remember that place Chessie used for her crazy real estate scam that led to a gang war that in turn led to oh Magnus God, getting yeah. banned from Stormgate that may have kicked off the whole thing that led to Aku's downfall, depending who you ask? I certainly remember that spooky manor we broke into. Hex thinks it's a lovely <laughs> fixer-upper with lots of character. Foob would explain that its ownership has been a point of dispute since he got his position, and since he doesn't really want either party to get it, he'd be happy to have some someone popular and slightly intimidating move in to settle this once and for all. So uh, he makes a point of asking him quite loudly if it was de- legal to deep-fry humanoids in his kingdom, asking for a friend. The two parties in the dispute being an exiled crime boss and a dwarven weapons merchant interest that already has an unpleasant disposition regarding the city and may be a part of a huge scam to begin with if rumors are to be trusted. Um, and uh, to which Hex simply asked, is it Dimzad? And I said, no. And Hex said, Dimzad will have my back then. Uh, the dwarven weapon merchants that believe they own the place were supposedly funded by a human lord who has since gone missing. It's all very suspect. And uh, Alex said, and not remotely pinnable on the Mpok. Which, to flash back, what happened to that human lord was uh, he actually um, got disappeared by the Mpok uh, with the help of Mephisto made uh, to face justice. I don't know if you remember that op. It was like one of the man that's a while back yeah isn't it was it? like one of the last things they handled before uh they launched the uh invasion of the deathlands they had to deal with this human lord and his crazy corrupt nonsense uh as for fried humanoids they'd be kicking down doors in the meat district of goblin town before they came bugging you there are certain assumptions about such ver- butchery though the standards usually return to the sentience and state of the creature at the time of butchery basically carcasses are fine living people are not that said not everyone obeys the rules and you would have a rather privileged position as far as inspection goes even in stormgate damn this city slicking thing might be easier than i thought how much would such a property go for in today's economy i'd be willing to begin negotiations by offering 6500 gp and I said that Foob would point out that the manor likely values at about 10000 but he'd be happy to give it to you for 7500 And that's what we counted it out. Gent declared him a homeowner, and uh, <laughs> Alex is like, so since we're not playing in person, do you like mail me the life tile or what? Um, <laughs> well, did you? No. I, I ain't mailing things to my brother. He lives in the same city. I can find him. <laughs> I can find him. Whatever. Um, after maybe just quickly dropping in the manor to scare out the rats, he made haste to find Noah and Seller on the idea of moving to the city. And then I had the trinkets ready for Gent that she'd found in the scavenging run. She found a silver platter, an ivory drinking horn that I had in brackets orcish, uh, an onyx ring, and a silver dagger. And uh, I asked what she wanted to send back to the tribe. Um, Alex pointed out, wait, is it is the ivory drinking horn, is it made, is it orc made or made of orc tusk? And I declared it was orc made, which, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's hard to call. Meanwhile, Gent picked out the stuff that she sent to the cottage, or the not the cottage, the college. We got a steel gauntlet with a bronze lens in the palm, 
a four-sided die engraved with arcane sigils instead of numbers, a copper coin with Garador the Blind God of Destruction on one side and the War Witch Selaeth on the other, an iron pentacle amulet, a small gold sphere with silver wings, and a big fang engraved with the symbol of the demon lord Gratz, and the symbol being a six-fingered hand. Then, uh, Chantel, uh, or sorry, Gent, held a competition while home, and the prize was their crystal flask. And the competition was basically based on junkyard wars. <laughs> uh, oh man, so wait, did you run the whole thing the way you did with your Iron Chef? sort of mini adventure i don't think so but i do remember what i had them make um basically uh so so chantel said whoever can build the most useful item in the field will win it'll be voted on by a panel of judges useful doesn't mean weapon necessarily um and uh then we jump back to hex do we want to jump back to you on that note Sure, we can. Um, I, think as we're, I'm going I think we're through... getting good segues here, though. Croaches and junkyards, come on. Yeah, it's true. Um, as I'm going through the uh, the source book for Low Life, I'm realizing like this is this is going to be a tough one, man. I might th this might last a while because I was just gonna sort of skim over the section called the lowdown which is a small assortment of rules and information to aid the traveler in his explorations of Mother Oif. Uh, I was just going to skim over this because it deals with things like measurements, distance, and uh, directions and navigations. But, you know, it's actually pretty funny stuff. Like, uh, like I won't read the whole thing, but, for example, measurements and distances... Um, Everything, all all forms of measurement and distance are called yorts, uh, named after Yort, uh, who was the winner of a challenge posed by the high, exalted, glorious infrisium of knowledge uh, to effectively it's about 16 create... yorts out. Exactly. The way the, way the crow the... flies, the way the crouch flies, crouch on a hang glider. But this, uh, this applies to everything. So one yort is about as broad as Yort's shoulders, which uh, it lists here is about, like in human terms, it's about one feet. Uh, but a big Yort is the distance from New Uruquar to the ruins of Old Uruquar, uh, 5,280 Yorts. And then one little Yort is about as long as Yort's thumb, which is an inch. And when measuring weight, uh, a Yort of weight weighs as much as Yort's left eye stalk, which is about a pound. This can all get very confusing to someone who has never even seen Yort, which is why Yort, the carrier of the Yort stick, spends his days traveling from city to city, town to town, village to village, and cave to cave, measuring things and marking them for all to see. There it is. Simple yet hideously complex. Yort's system is weird, but it gets the job done. I love this. Uh, there's, there is an illustration of Yort. I have a with whole campaign just going around protecting Yort. Exactly, or, or, you could be. Oh, and could, halfway through the campaign, he just like dies in a freak accident, and you have to find a new York who has like the exact same specifications, or risk throwing all me measurement into disarray. 
Yeah, or he or he disappears, but he leaves secret codes in uh, the Yort measurements that he marks on everything. A- and you have to like you have to like Da Vinci code. You have to Yort code uh, your way to Yort's uh, hiding. Or place. there's a battle between two cities, and you want one city to win, so you go to the other city with a fake Yort, so that all their measurements on their like artillery is wrong. They all like bombard themselves. That sounds like classic low life. Man, oh man. So this is what I'm saying is like even the stuff where I'm like, oh, I'll just skip over this. Why would I want to skip over that? We just learned about this guy, Yort. I love the illustration of him. I mean, that's the um, that's the same thing I'm having with these notes is like it used to be I'd I like it used to be I'd be done talking about the operation by now. But instead, I'm getting into all the little nitty gritty details. Oh, I mean, I guess that's the fun stuff, right? I guess that does answer your question that you had before, where it's like, I think it's more more important to include a cool footnote. I just don't um, want it to be a disruptive footnote. Right. Uh, in terms of, of distances, um, the geographic center of the planet is called the Keister of God, G-A-W-D, and... Uh, so everything is charted uh, going towards or away from the keister. If you're headed towards the keister, you are headed wholewards, and then if you're headed away, you're headed wholewence. Uh, so here's your example. New Urlquar is 50 big yorts wholewence from Goop. Nice. Goop is 50 big yorts wholeward from New Urlquar. Yeah, that makes sense. Obviously. Of course. And uh, a device known as a keister compass is useful to figure out where the keister actually is. It's able to detect and speci- and uh, detect the specific direction of the keister relative to the bearer. Uh, they're pretty rare devices, and uh, they fetch a pretty clam so when they can be found. The Remember, keister? clams. Uh, the keister is basically like the magnetic core of okay, the Earth. Okay, that's what I thought. Um, <laughs> yeah, the geographic center of the planet. Um. And uh, don't Wait, forget it that just point uh, down all the time. <laughs> I guess it's it. It doesn't specify in this blurb where the keister like, I think is. It makes it just more the sense geographic center, but maybe is... it's like ma- the magnetic. Yeah, north, that's what right? I was about to say. Is like maybe that's what it is. But then knowing this game, maybe the keister is literally a physical thing that dictates magnetic north. With a with a big hole in it, like it, I don't know. Um, all that to say, don't forget that currency is called clams, so a rare keister compass can fetch a pretty clam. Uh, Maybe it's the North God. Pole and there's just a big hole. Oh, it's the North Hole! It's the North Hole? Could be the North Hole, yeah. That makes sense. But there's a South Hole, too. I bet you can walk right through the Earth. The Oith. The Oith. <laughs> Um, anyway, with, with all of that in mind, talking about yorts and, and keister compasses and whole words and whole wents, with all that in mind, uh, it's important to realize that Mother Oith is a messed up place. The planet has been victim to more cataclysms and calamities in the past aeon or two than a schnoobel has butt hairs, which is a lot. As a result, things haven't always... Uh, things aren't always exactly how one might imagine they should be. Things that should have rotted away or crumbled to dust are still intact. Objects that should be small, like shoes or lunchboxes, can be as big as houses. Mostly these odd distortions 
are limited to ancient things, stuff that was around before the rise of the lowly. But once in a while, a uh, being might stumble across something modern that's similarly screwed up, like a pair of pants that inexplicably no longer fit, or a pile of poo that smells like baked bread, or a ginormous oily boyd hatching from a normal-sized egg. These happenings are often seen as omens by those sensitive to such things. Dude, I, I just um, found... So, you know, I, I had said on the side, like, hey, maybe I'll uh, find that creepy freaks guy, the bug, and I'll, I'll make that my crotch. And I found him. Yeah. You know what I found him in? What? This is a tick... Someone else's lowlife campaign. No, this is a TikTok video. ASMR creepy freaks unboxing box 18. It's a kid like whispering. It's an uh, someone is unboxing like, creepy freaks. Yeah, and he's whispering it like ASMR style. He's like, "This this is a <laughs> crawly, which has a, you can see a bug spray implement and a a, a fly swatter oh, and a newspaper, which is also an implement for swatting bugs." Like it's a minute and forty eight seconds. I can't believe this exists. This is at Young Santa. <laughs> If you guys want to get your creepy freaks ASMR going on with my God, I'm kind of glad this exists. I I got to say creepy freaks unboxing ASMR is not something that I ever could have predicted. Wow, man. Anyways, I'm going to be playing Crawly the Croach. Hell yeah, Crawly the Croach. Um, and so the next section in the source book is character creation. Uh, but I, I don't think... We can start character creation necessarily without covering things like the races. Or maybe, because the races well, are super you know, in-depth and there's a lot of them. Exactly. But you know what? Um, so I will say on uh, page 9 of the source book, it does provide you with uh, a flowchart. Just how to create yeah. your character. Thing 1, pick your race. Okay. So we'll, we'll, we're going to start with the races and then we'll just work our way through the flowchart and cover things as they come up. I will say, I think it's pretty funny that, like, number one step is to choose your race. But uh, the first thing listed are actually occupations, like character classes. So, so I don't know. I don't know what the deal is with that, uh, with that order. But uh, we'll we'll do the we'll do races first, shall we? Yeah, well, and I'm probably gonna want to have notes on all of them because uh, they're all got little cool little things. All right. Um, do you want to bounce back so to me I'll... before we start that? Yeah, you, we better do it because, like you said, there are a lot of these races. All right. So back to Hex. Having bought the property, he decides he should go talk to Noah about it. And I'm like, ah, I think you've already sold her on it. The city life is not distasteful to her, and Stormgate may prove livelier than the cities of the Deathlands. Yeah, livelier than the cities of the Deathlands. You get it? So, uh, Hex and Noah pack up their stuff and start the journey back to Stormgate to set up their new home. They probably, uh, Hex says he probably spends the rest of his downtime working to make the house look a bit less like a haunted manor. Got some cactuses for the yard. I'm like, I don't think it was so much haunted as it was just like a secret gang hideout, which, bonus, spacious lower level. And uh, he's like, didn't we fight something in the basement? I thought there was like a, a Zorn or something. McGill. This is pointless, but do you remember what the non 
humanoid monster lurking in the manor was in the first act of Al's Aces when they pulled this real estate scam. My God, I was probably I was you know honestly I was probably gonna guess as well. Wow. Only. Okay, it was a Nothic. I said uh, I believe there was a Nothic or something, but otherwise it was Inkpin and his people. And uh, Alex is like, you're right, a Nothic. Well, baking soda and vinegar will take that smell out of the bricks. Um, and he didn't say he had like any specific stuff that he wanted to do. So I summarized the month. So I said, you spend much of your time after the move fixing up the manor to your liking. Noah helps also spending lots of time out in the city, getting supplies and learning the place. Though your time spent together, well, though your time is mostly spent together in the house, you're both exposed to the very political buzz that seems to have entered the air in Stormgate. The cultural renaissance of Stormgate has come with its share of upheaval. There are many vocal groups out in the streets. Bugbear supremacists, beast folk refugees from the wastelands. Do you remember that ongoing conflict in the wastelands with the Red Fang and the Black Tusk tribes? It's always going on in the I background. I do remember it. It isn't covered in the campaign at all, really. Uh, I do remember it, and uh, but as you say that, it occurs to me like, man, there are a lot of like background conflicts across Trail, aren't there? Uh, and even some idealists who are loudly pitching the idea that the South cross into the North of Drail and old orders be abandoned. Put simply, it's the Jazz Age of Drail. <laughs> Uh, and you're in a major city during a wild time. And then I wanted to jump to Connor, and uh, so we did so. Connor returns to Stormgate as well, working to further establish the Church of Palor there. With the local church thriving under his guidance, he quickly turns his attention to outreach and missionary efforts, efforts as has always been his specialty. This leads him on an unsettling road of discovery regarding the state of the wastelands. He becomes well acquainted with the beast folk refugees mentioned earlier as they provide first-hand accounts of the struggle both as it exists in the wastelands and in the minds of the citizens of Stormgate. Connor is unable to provide the support of the church in the wastelands because a war rages there between two factions of beastmen, one which Connor recognizes as the dark tribe that drove him from his home so long ago. Because that's a little thing, is that Connor, like, he became a missionary because his family lived in the wasteland, but then they got driven out by this whole conflict with the Black Tusks. Uh, with Stormgate under new leadership, many are hopeful they can beseech the rest of Southern Drail for aid in the conflict. Supposedly, a tyrant aided by vast powers of shadow and darkness leads the enemy. However, this leads to a sore spot politically. Stormgate's leadership and foremost authorities are all seen as being in league with the Empok to some degree, and the Empok's interests lie in the Deathlands, where few perceive the threat as being nearly so dire anymore. Despite knowing there is likely a tyrannical force that needs to be out ousted from Egglock still in the Deathlands, Connor faces great difficulty in the perception that he and those in positions like him have chosen the Empok's fight over the more pressing one facing the people of the Wastelands. It's so political, man! All of this simply informs the continuing political tensions currently unfolding throughout Drail while you guys are doing special ops in the forests of Egglock. What do you think of that? It's like the wire, man. There's so much politics. <laughs> oh man, you got to do now. You got to do uh, the wire, but in Drail. Oh man, I don't know. Yeah, 
maybe maybe the next campaign could do like be a hard a hardcore detail oriented investigative procedural campaign but set in drill i mean i've already said what the next and like last in the mpox saga campaign is going to be it's going to be like the leg it's it's odium's legacy it's like the the last the the latter days of the mpox and uh so i don't know maybe that'll have a wire vibe to it but i doubt it I doubt it. Um, so I had one more bonus scene, which would, uh, but before that, I uh, went into the college's findings regarding the trinkets that Jen had picked out. So, gauntlet with a with a lens in the palm. Uh, unclear, though some scholars suggest this is some sort of homage to the god Helm, whose symbol is a gauntlet with an eye in the palm. The arcane sigil D4. The sigils correspond to the elements earth, air, water, and fire. And this die was likely high elven in make. Uh, the Gerador Slayeth coin. Lots of history conveyed in this one, though it doesn't have much specific value or special properties beyond this. Gerador is the patron god of Magnus Dwarfbelly, who leads the Cyclopean Gerador... The... The Cyclopean Order of Gerador's Divine Justice in Goblin Town and throughout Drail, effectively a paladin of order devoted to the blind god of destruction. Selaith, meanwhile, is one of the great villains of the history of Drail, being seen as responsible for the witching wars which define much of Northern Drail's history. Basically, it's a coin with a good on one side and a bad on the other. It's like a coin with Judge Dredd on one side and Hitler on the other. <laughs> Pretty literal because I've in the past compared uh, Magnus as the like the Cyclopean Order of Gerador's Divine Justice to the to the judges and Judge Dredd and Selaith to Hitler because she's like this this big war criminal that everyone blames as being responsible for the big the witching wars. Um, Iron Pentacle Amulet is Monday and simply a personal belonging of a warlock or wizard. The gold sphere with silver wings, made from highly valuable materials but little more than an expensive bauble. And finally, the big Gratz symbol thing appears to have belonged to a troll. Gratz is considered by demonologists to be the second most powerful demon in the Abyss currently, with a reputation for corruption that is more in line with devilish behavior than the typically chaotic portfolio of destruction most demons hold to. This one comes with a note asking if the college can keep this one for study or display. And uh, Gent got an insight check on that one and realized that, uh, or sensed, that the college wanted to study the fang further. And so they let, uh, the, they let the college keep the fang to analyze for the time being. So then my extra scene that I had to do was uh, Valfar the Black Dragonborn Black Metal Bard, legendary Mpok agent and warden of the Northern Highlands, has been invited by his friends from long ago, the zombie ogre Zog and the undead noble Bidfmetu, to visit Tristania, the last kingdom of the Deathlands to fall, and the first to overthrow their nightside eclipse masters in an unprecedented revolt. Valfar is asked to touch down his Mephit-driven flying sleigh in the no-man's land before the gates of the kingdom so that Biff and Zog may escort him through the gates without alarming the citizenry. 
Valfar agrees. Zog greets Valfar again with great joviality, practically going in for a hug. Biff remains politely withdrawn, behaving as a diplomat would toward a visiting ambassador. Valfar hugs Zog, but otherwise retains his composure. The stench is remarkable, but his nature allows Valfar not to avoid uh, tearing up from it uh, the way a human might. Valfar being a black dragonborn, the dude spits acid. He can get through a bad stench. Uh, so the two led Valfar back to the gates of the city and through them. It's a sheerly symbolic gesture as the walls are badly damaged in some places. You could not be kept out if they wanted. As uh, Valfar entered the city itself, he was instantly struck and unnerved by the turning, vacant gazes of countless skeletons. They were all over the city, mostly gathered on scaffolding, in the process of rebuilding structures when they arrived. Zombies shuffled through the streets, carrying and delivering supplies and materials, but they did not shift their stares at Valfar the way the skeletons did so openly. Biff offered the assurances, you are something of a legendary figure to them. When you crashed into the Citadel to battle Nadia, we all took note. It was a moment that inspired us to, to the courage required to throw off the yoke of our old masters. Biff hesitated a moment and then said, in truth, I was not here. I simply speak as the voice of our people. I had not been summoned to the city until our re revolt had begun. And, uh... Man, there's a little mistake from Alex here. He says they would do well to remember what happens to tyrannical undead. But then he wrote Hex sneers instead of Valfar sneers, which makes me feel a little better because I'm always making that mistake too. The fact that Alex played two, like like a black dragonborn and then a Gila monster lizard man, like two like scaly creature player characters played by the same guy is confusing. It happens. You mix it up. Even he mixed it up. I doubt they will forget. At the very least, we intend to establish something here that will outlast the fall of those oppressors. Valfar's guides continued to lead him right to the steps of the citadel they mentioned earlier. Our new leaders took the citadel back for themselves, and from here, they now oversee the kingdom's reconstruction. We have done what we can to prepare our utmost hospitality for you. Welcome, Lord Valfar. Biff offered a low bow to the side of the steps, allowing Valfar and Zog to continue ahead of him. Through the Though the mill... Though military in the castle-like nature of its interior, Valfar immediately found the inside populated by a range of finely dressed skeletal maids, manservants, and similar attendants. As Biff mentioned, all manner of hospitality was offered. The bony servants offered to take Valfar's coat, held out cigars and similar favors, and Zog gave promptly verbal cues for each, such as coat, smoke, drink? Because Zog's a big fat uh, zombie ogre, if you'll remember. So Valfar took a cigar. Uh, this all occurs in a moving Be Our Guest style entrance as Valfar is led through the Citadel to a grand main hall. I'm painting a real great picture here. <laughs> I thought I'd read this whole thing <laughs> off verbatim. A skeleton hurries to provide a match to light your cigar. Inside the main hall, a banquet unlike any seen before in Drail has been prepared. The table is laden with a bounty of fish and seafood from the coast which have gone decades without concern of mortal appetites. There are countless goblets and bottles of wine from a time before recorded history. The chairs and tables are all of a make and material that suggests opulence far beyond what this citadel normally holds. This is also cool notes is like, Valfar is literally getting to be served the first feast that has been held in the Deathlands since the night Side eclipse took over in like antiquity like 
any wine or fish that's like the details I'm hitting on here, like the wine is literally older than any wine anyone could have ever had before now. And the fish come from a sea that hasn't been fished in like generations. And so it's this cool, like epic moment uh, without any like real action or anything. It's just epic in its opulence. Um I said, Biff announces you and Zog and a Doom-style doot-doot trumpet skeleton plays at your entrance. And I include the little YouTube of the doot-doot band playing the uh, Doom trumpet. <laughs> um, Love that doot skeleton. All the zombies and skeletons in the hall gave a slight bow to Valfar. It is difficult to tell with such beings, but they got a genuine sense of deference from some of them, like on a personal level. Valfar was granted a seat at the middle of the table with Biff a little down the way from him and Zog across from him. Ornate chairs remained empty at either end. Um, I don't know. Have I shown you the pictures of Biff and Zog yet? I don't know if I included them in the the big stack of pictures that I sent to you last time. I don't think so. All right, I'm going to pull that up. So I'm scrolling back through our chat. Looking for a kind of pathetic looking uh, Nosferatu looking dude. Who's he might Biff, have said Biff. Who's Biff. And then uh, Zog, who is like a zombie ogre. He's he's the ogre from, um, from Resident Evil 4. Anyway, there I sent the picture. Oh yeah, you did. You did include these guys. All yeah. right. Well, we can re-include them for the for the notes for this episode. Um. So. Uh. Well, I must say, I wasn't expecting such a warm welcome from such cold corpses. Valfar ribs Zog a bit. And at whose table do I find myself? Biff rose once more, and the trumpeteers announced two more arrivals that Biff introduced: the zombie queen Goulet and the skeleton witch. And I'll include pictures of them. I'm not sure if I included pictures of them or not. I may have, but we'll we'll have them just in case. What's most important? There were a lot of pictures. What's more important is that what's most important is that you see the picture of Goulet, which is like as close as you can get to like a picture of the scene I'm describing here. Cool. You'll also notice that Goulet, um, the hem of her gown is. Uh, just penises is is wieners yeah so we're having a real crude episode today um each walks with the hey 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 hang on hang on a second here uh in that picture in the background there's a balcony and above the balcony there is a sigil why do i know that sigil tom because it's the ghost symbol yeah that's because right because goulet zombie queen is a song by ghost Ah, now that I didn't know. Oh, it's a, Don't it's, listen to enough ghosts. Oh, it's super kick ass. It's almost got like a it's got like a surf rock vibe. It's like Well, I know what I'm gonna be listening to when we're yeah, done. It's super kick ass. Um I was probably playing at the at this point, honestly. Uh each walks with the grace of a noble maiden with unearthly finery that suggests their class, but also their nature. Each takes their seat on one end of the banquet table. And then I also said, I see we're running mad late. Are we okay wrapping this scene? And Gent said it was okay. Uh, or not Gent, Chantel. Anyways, 
Thank you for coming, Valfar and Draglin Guy. Naturally, your reputation precedes you, Goulet says to Valfar. We have done our best to offer what comforts we can. I hope you find them enjoyable. She draws a goblet of wine over to her. I don't suppose you would have any interest in small talk, she smiles. Thank you for your invitation. Your kingdom seems lovely, Valfar tries. It is much like my people, a shadow of a broken corpse. I, I have a much greater vision for it, as does my associate here. She gestures to the Skeleton Witch. Should also be said, Skeleton Witch is also a kick-ass metal band. You'll have to forgive her silence. Her voice can be unsettling. You detect the Skeleton Witch give, almost give a sort of shrug, though she watches you silently. I see. And what exactly does this greater vision entail? Simply put, a future wherein Tristania is truly a city, like the others in Drail. Good things have been done in, with Decimai here, productive things. I would like Tristania to join its neighbor in rehabilitation, but she sets her glass down. It will not happen if Tristania is not allowed to survive as it is. She looks to Valfar with determination in her eyes. From what Biff and Zog have told me, and I do trust them, you were always the greatest proponent for tolerance of our kind among the Empok. Because of you, they did not break their protocols, but they offered humane concessions. And this is a really funny note, because Goulet is saying, oh, you, Valfar, are the lightest on undead because you were nice to Zog and Biff way back when. But in the time since he was nice to uh, Zog and Biff, Valfar has become, like, the number one undead hunter in Drail. Like, he's the one who hunted Nadia, like, across the continent and, like, at, like to destroy her and went out of his way to, like, hunt down all those vampires. Like, it's funny for her to say this because, you know, it, like, from one end of the campaign, yes, he was the greatest proponent for like preservation of undead but on the other end of the campaign he was like the number one undead slayer um biff looked to the queen who paused and continued i understand that you are no longer an agent of the empok but you have a reputation as i said before here your reputation is that of a hero in a place where such concepts are foreign we would ask you advocate for Tristania as you did for Zog and Biff in the past. We ask that you be our protector in the years to come. Goulet sighs. Both from the Nightside Eclipse and from the rest of Drail should its people turn on us. The determination in her seems spent. Her hopes no now rest on Valfar's verdict. Valfar considered this for a moment, weighing it in his head. And then I wrote, bonus, bonus, boner scene. I have the finalists from Gent's scrap competition. Number one, a pipe pistol. Number two, spiked knuckles. Number three, a hot pot. And number four, heavy steel-toed boots. Um, Valfar chimed in, I would require complete cooperation. And also asked, can I make an entry in the scrap competition? Um, I also said, an honorable mention is given for a tiny Kenku child that submits a mask made from a broken plate. Uh... <laughs> Goulet gestures to the zombies and skeletons of the hall, who Valfar realizes are ha hanging on his words the same way Goulet is. What else do you think we could offer? Um, <laughs> Alex put in threw in his entry for the uh, scrap competition, which was bang stick. It's bang on a stick. I took some powder out of them bullets and tied it all up in a bag with some match heads. Now when you hit <laughs> someone with it, it explodes. Uh. Goulet smiles, like, knowing that they're offering, like, 
literally every comfort in the kingdom to uh, Valfar. Um, Gent <laughs> says, I don't want to interrupt your scene, but I will interject with how awesome those are. And I say, well, I just wanted to let you pick a winner to get the crystal flask. And uh, she's like, what is the hot pot? Just a hot, uh, just a pot? And I'm like, and we're running late, so I don't want to leave it. A pot with a sort of heating trench built into the base. Like you could put flammables into the trench and light them and make a, make a cook. Uh, and then Chantel says, that one will, bin, will win based on usefulness in the field and the Kenku's hoarding canteens. It seems like an item that would get many votes. So we uh, went ahead with that. And then they said, but I want the knuckles and the mask, so I will ask whoever made those if they would consider a trade. Um, I said I'd get back to them on that. The child with the mask will trade for the rose made of silver scales. They traded for that. And uh, the spiked knuckles inventor will trade for the steel gauntlet with the lens in the palm or three of your rings, the onyx one, the bronze Ouroboros one, and the lead one with the crystal shard. And she said he can take the gauntlet. Then... Uh, I, I told Alex, feel free to respond as Valfar when he's ready. Goulet has offered the complete cooperation of her and her people, suggesting it is one of the few things her people can guarantee by their nature, being undead. They can basically snap to attention at her will. Um, so he says, I will do it, but preparations must be made. The highlands must not be left unguarded. Of course. We know it is much to ask that you be warden of two places at once, but we have seen you soar from one end of Drail to the next with great effect. Uh, uh, oh my god. So McGill, I was reading this and it was confusing me. So what I write is, of course, we know it is much to ask that you be warden of two places at once, but we have seen you soar from one end of Drail to the next with great effect. Spider on my arms. Spider on my arm. Get off. What the fuck? What the fuck? Okay. That was our old buddy, the spider that used to be our uh, mainstay guest on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. The one that, uh, what happened? Crawled into your water? Yeah, he was, uh, crawled into my bong, crawled into all my stuff. Uh, and Were you like, <laughs> so wait, wait, that you, you have that in your transcript? Were you doing like text to speech? No, I was like, I, I typed that out while the spider was on my arm. I was like, ah. <laughs> spider on well, my arm. Well, I admire the, your the dedication. Spider on my arm. Off for you. What the fuck? <laughs> Great effect. Spider on my arm. Poseid on my arm. Get off you. What the fuck? Uh, and then I wrapped up with, if you shall, uh, I had, uh, if you shall accommodate us, be assured we shall accommodate you. The skeleton which said in the rasping telepathic voice that striked, uh, hex, er, striked, struck Valfar as that of an old wise woman who has become old beyond the point of death. Zog cheered. Biff grinned and quietly kept his joy to himself, finally taking the opportunity to enjoy some of the feast before him. Goulet and Skeleton Witch seemed equally pleased, and the hall entered the jovial ambience of a traditional banquet. An ally for Tristania. Who could have imagined? And then I said, end of sesh. Thanks so much for staying on with all this. Uh, Valfar will later take an opportunity to play a rendition of I, the Witchfinder, for them. And then I said, next time we'll return to Omega Base following the month of downtime so you can get briefed on Operation Birth and Death. Take care, everybody. Just like I say at the end of the episode. Nice. But it's not the end of the episode. It's not.
Just my side. I'm done. All right, so we're going to flip back. It wrapped up good because I got to the end of the session in the episode. We're going to flip back to low-life character creation. And uh, I was looking through it. So there are nine races. And then it appears that uh, the occupations that they list here, it doesn't seem like they're actually mandatory. They're just like uh, sources of inspiration of the types of characters you might encounter in a game of low life, but nowhere does it actually say that you have to pick an occupation. Uh, all it gives us is uh, the world of Oith is populated by a whole shitload, that's SH apostrophe load, shitload of distinct and unique individuals. Despite personal differences and diversities, a great number of organisms choose to follow a similar path or occupation through life. The following list describes a small sampling of such careers and professions. So it seems like these are like these are for flavor, you know? Uh, so if you want your guy to be a spellcaster, you could say that he is a hocus poker skilled in magic and the use of arcane wonders. Although hocus pokers use their powers judiciously, they're often looked upon with awe by lesser beings, prompting some acts of cruelty and subjugation. Because of this reputation, hocus pokers are simultaneously feared and revered by the superstitious masses. So... That's just as an example, and it seems like all of it's these tempting. are just like... It's tempting. Um, so there are 22 occupations listed here, and there are nine races, and each race has like a full page devoted to oh, them. I want to hear and, them all. Oh, man. Okay, so here's the thing, though. It's a lot, and I don't think we're going to get anywhere near through all of them in the time left on this I episode. Just, I definitely need to hear the whole list. I don't know if I need to hear... Every yeah. So, bit of every so here's here's what I'm thinking, Tom. Uh, you seem to already have an idea for a character in mind. So what I'm gonna do is I will give the list of all of the races. Uh, I won't bother with the full list of occupations, but I'll list all the races and give like a one sentence description of them. And then you can tell me an idea you have over what you want to play. And the last thing we'll do on this episode is I will read out the important stuff about that race. So we can at least complete step one of character creation for you. How does that sound? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So uh, first up, we got the Bodles, uh, which is a sort of a mashed up. It's not like a, an acronym. It's a mashed up word from being of dubious line lineage these are effectively it's funny these are dvs from rifts basically bodles uh. are basically dvs uh they are horribly mutated descendants of the long lost human race take every mutant movie mutation you've ever seen or imagined put them in a blender and you toxic have a bodle goop. toxic goop. yeah Give toxic goop. goop bring back goop. no two are alike if you want to just be a weird mutant creation you be a bodal. Cream fillions, the heavily contaminated and radiated remains of snack cakes uh, which have gained it would be sentience. Great to be a cream fillion named Nathan. Nathan cream fillion. <laughs> that is pretty good. Nathan cream fillion. Um, and these are the ones that uh, that I described as being Conan Conan Bar the Barbarian snack cakes and. Uh, in hindsight, no, they're not. They are snack cakes who are Conan the Barbarian. But man, the illustrations on them look so good. They're just like all demented and, and zombified. They have these really dopey Korgoth expressions of on Mars their faces. Baria. Yeah. Um, 
Croaches, we've talked about them before. They are the evolved descendants of cockroaches. And I will say, Tom, uh, in reading up on the races, croaches are one of the the OGs because they, you know, cockroaches predate the great the great flesh. But uh, worms are also sort of of that era. So worms are also a very ancient race. That's worm with an e. They are evolved annelids. They come in flat earth and intestinal varieties. <laughs> play just worm people intestinal worm people earthworm people flatworm people yep. horks tapeworm people horks uh horks are the descendants of a barbarous uh denizen of middle oith who arrived via dimensional rift so they're kind of dbs as well they're orcs yeah they're orcs uh ufos are remnants of alien invaders and tourists now stranded on mother oith they're like grays you know ufos ufos yeah I actually Piles. didn't get that one when I read it until you like said it last episode. And I was like, oh, uh, <laughs> it's like UFO. Oh, yeah. um, piles are kind of like oozes. They're magically animated piles of contaminated goo. Uh, there are the Smelfs, which are another interdimensional race. They stepped through a rift and wound up on Oith. And they're, they're called Smelfs because they have giant noses. I don't like no Smelfs. They can smell. Smelfs? I don't like no smells. You don't like no smells? I don't like no smells. I like that there's one here. Uh, there's a smell that looks like a smoif. Smoif smelf. Um, it looks like, it sounds like, like just from reading up on these, it sounds like smelfs really are primarily based on smurfs. Uh, like the quote here is from but Are they a like mainly named... like magic users? Um... They, let's see here. Seems like, like their main thing is that, uh, is that they just smell, they can smell things really well. Yeah, it looks like they are smell casters, as it is known. Yeah, I don't like it. I don't like them. No? I don't, I don't like smells having smells. Uh, yeah, fuck them. Uh, yeah, and, and, uh, confirming here my suspicion. These guys are primarily based on Smurfs. Uh, for example, uh, Smelfs choose their names based on an aspect of their personality, such as murderer Smelf, sexy Smelf, <laughs> brown noser Smelf, uh, and the, the quote, there's a sample quote uh, for each race, and this one is, la 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 la, what the bleep does that mean? Make some bleeping sense, you idiots, said by crotchety Smelf. Um... So Smelfs, uh, they're Tizents. Tizents are, are called Tizents because they, they are somewhat unclassifiable. Tisn't this, tisn't that. They are the evolved remains of Oith's animal life. So, you know, just like uh, Bodles are sort of the mutated descendants of, of humans, of humans, uh, Tizents are like the mutated descendants of animals. And then the aforementioned worms. So, uh, what were you thinking of playing, Tom? You still thinking of Croach? Yeah, I think I'm leaning towards Croach. Um, the, a lot of them are really cool, but I think I'm leaning Croach. I, like, I just, I, I've said it so many times, but I cannot get enough of these illustrations. Like, man, so much time and effort clearly went into drawing these things, and some of them are just, just amazing. Like, the, 
one of the sample illustrations for the the Bodles, the beings of dubious lineage. Like there's like a three-eyed troll man in checkered overalls, and it looks like he's he's handling some sort of I don't know what it is, like an enema bulb, I guess, with an arm that's coming out of his forehead. And he's standing in front of a, a bucket of, of some toxic goop. It's got a skull and three X's on it. Like, man, oh man, there's a lot of imagination and, and truly weird stuff going on in these, these drawings. I really love the cream fillion ones. They may be my favorite. It's one of like back-to-back -back cream fillions where one's like a Twinkie and the other is uh, like a snack cake, a moon pie or something. Might be a, um, might be a Rice Krispie square eye, uh, eye or the Twinkie. Oh, the, the one on the left, you mean? Yeah, it could, that could be. Uh, it's got a bit of a... Got a crinkly kind yeah. of texture to it. Which, what am I thinking of? The This one, the circular one, it has that white, it's like a chocolate cake. It has that white icing ah, uh, sort of lattice work. No, no, it's not a Joe Louis. The Joe Louis don't have the icing on them. Ah, oh, what am I thinking of? Um, Ding Dongs? I don't know. Yeah, it's, uh, the thing is, I think we have Joe Louis here in Canada. And then, yeah, they're not a they're not an American treat, unfortunately. No, but like I think that the, whatever that is in America, like Ding Dongs or whatever, that is like their equivalent because they don't have Joe Louis. I gotta look this up. It's gonna drive me crazy. So next, is it the list of occupations? Uh, here we go. They're hostess cupcakes. Oh, okay. That's what they are. They're specifically hostess cupcakes with uh, with cream in the center. Okay. There it is. Um, so uh, what's next is first I'm just going to read off some of the stuff about croaches. And we're going to go a little bit deeper on them. And uh, while I do that, if you want to look at the list of occupations and sort of see if there's one that uh, strikes your fancy, uh, we can then assign you an occupation as well. So, despite their generally cosmopolitan lifestyles, many croaches choose to follow the path of the wandering adventurer. A vagarious existence appeals to their inquisitive sensibilities, and the treasures and excitement from such a life uh, that such a life affords draw a great number of croaches from a more citified routine. The wondrous secrets unveiled by the arcane and mystical arts lead a great many croaches to become holy rollers or hocus pokers. The thirst for such knowledge is not unique to croaches, of course, but croaches are perhaps second only to worms in the fervor and diversity of their pursuits. Despite their heritage as the descendants of some of the most hated and reviled beings from the ancient days of Oith, croaches have risen to a position among Oith's most noble and vital denizens. Uh, not unlike the once lowly worms, they have emerged from the filth and ruin of shattered civilizations to attain a majesty and vibrance undreamed by their miserable ancestors. They're incredibly adapted and can be found almost anywhere. Some enjoy positions of high power. Uh, like this, this is what I'm talking about, man. Like I, I was like, some enjoy positions of high power, high power. And in my mind, I'm thinking. I don't have to go through this list, but these are all great. Like, why would I want to skip uh, Birnized, the, the Implumpinated, the boss of New Urlgar, and Sultan Pepper, Sultan Pepper, sovereign monarch of that one place with all the sand? Yeah. It's all of the language in this is very goblin-y, I gotta say. Hey. Like, this is it's like this is written by a goblin. It's written Others by a maintain, 
written by a crouch. Others maintain their place among the lowly, like the well-known but inept mugger Thugsley the Crunch and the wandering hermit Grubel the Gripe. By and large, crouches are industrious and eager people, perpetually seeking to better themselves and build a better life for their larvae. Not only are crouches socially adaptive, they're also among the most resilient and grisly of Oith's denizens. Their tough exoskeletons provide them with natural armor, and their extremely efficient digestive systems allow them to derive sustenance from just about anything. For some reason, crouches are extremely fond of the feces of other creatures. It's just always got to go back to the poop jokes. I mean, they are cockroaches. They are. Taverns and restaurants worldwide cater to this engrossment, which doesn't much bother the other resident beings, considering what a crap hole the rest of the planet is. Nothing wrong with a little poo now and then, I never say. <laughs> I never say. Um, so, uh, some racial in- edges and hindrances imparted by the Croach race. Antennae, antennae, antenna, crouch, uh, this, it misspelled it as crouches. Crouches are able to use their antennae to help them get around in the dark. Penalties for bad lighting are halved, rounded down. A crunchy shell. The crouch's thick exoskeleton gives them a plus one toughness bonus. They melt in your mouth, not in your hand. Multiple limbs. Most crouches have four arms and two legs. A crouch may attack with a weapon in each hand, although the normal multi-action penalties apply. Some crouches, however, are born with only two arms. Such crouches may choose one free edge. Not me. And not you. And gullet of steel crouches are able to digest and derive nutritive sustenance from any non-poisonous organic matter. They come in a huge variety of sizes. Some are only a yort or two tall, but most are about five or six yorts. Um, so you're going to be a crouch. Do you have a name for your for your crawly? Your taking it from cre- crawly I'm the crouch. Taking it from creepy freaks. I'm gonna be crawly. Crawly the creepy freak crouch. I think all and... those cro- all those crouches you listed had titles. They were like blank the blank. So do I need a title? Or maybe I need to pick uh, my occupation It doesn't first. say... It doesn't say... Oh, okay, here, actually. Uh, let me read the blurb on Croach names. There really isn't much convention to the way Croaches name their larvae. Some choose wimpy little names like Egg or Willis. Others opt for more potent appellations like Criminy Who's-A-Fat or Lictitious Burgelmeister. It pretty much just depends on how weird your parents are. So, you want a title... I think you can have a title if you uh, want. I don't, I don't think the title is something that gets bestowed to you as an egg, though. I think that, because by the sound of it, it was like like that Salt and Pepper guy. He's he probably he he got his name probably once he became the lord of the place with all the sand, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. But someone like Grubel the Gripe, I mean, he had or to, Thugsley he, the Crunch. He had to gripe. Oh yeah, I don't know. He had to crunch to, <laughs> he had to, to get crunch. the name. All right. Well, maybe Crawley will uh, will get a title. Maybe I'll figure as... one out as we create him. Sure. So Crawley the Croach. And uh, do you have, have any thoughts on uh, an occupation for Crawley? Anything speak to you? Can you list off the occupations? There are so many, but I will. Um... I just need the names. We don't need to get too much into them. We're running pretty late. Booty Hunter. Crafts being, gadabout, gangsta, goon, ham, hocus poker, hoink, holy roller, lash master, obsessed, oldster, 
Pedalmeister, Pedon, Pimp, Prisocorn, Slave, uh, Slickster, Snoot, Tail Talker, Smellcaster, Weirdo, and Weisenheimer. Man, these there's a lot of good ones there. I mean, so Booty Hunter, that like. What was the one? Booty Hunter feels like something out of uh, no, the RPG. I, I know. Going Commando. Well, so, so is Pimp. Um, what is what is Poink? Poink? Hoink? Hoink with an H. Hoink. Hoink. What is that? Hoinks are the various militia watchmen and posses charged by rulers or hired by townsfolk to maintain order and curtail villainy and crime. I was thinking of being part of... is endowed with judiciary powers. These are like... They could be like the judges. I was thinking of being part of a spilitia. A spilitia. A spilitia? But um, what about... What is a tail talker? Tail talkers... In a world bloated with illiteracy and ignorance, and ignorance, histories and legends are often passed through the generations in the form of epic tales. Those skilled in the telling of such tales are known uncreatively as talkers of tales or tattlers. Talkers are great storytellers and orators. They have a vast repertoire of stories, myths, epics, anecdotes, proverbs, sagas, and fables which, with which they entertain, edify, and educate the populace, often in exchange for food, supplies, and treasures. So they, it seems like they're sort of a cross between a bard and a scholar. I'm a bit... I, I'm almost afraid to ask this, but... Um, uh, <laughs> is a pimp just what it sounds like? I feel like yes, it is okay. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I suppose it is an unfortunate thing, you know. I mean, at least they're not going so so hard on it like Hole did. We're not we're not going to run into any like pedophilic pri- priests in uh, in low life, but there are indeed pimps and slave masters uh, listed here. Problematic. Yeah, I I'm gonna need to look at this list and ha- have get back to you. I can't decide. What about the what about the price of corns? What is that? Uh, they're pirates and thieves. Uh, I don't. I don't. These I people don't travel the oceans and waterways of the world, stealing stuff, sinking boats, getting drunk, and causing ruckus. Price of corns are not welcome in most societies, but several island cities make a good trade, catering to their whims and needs. Uh, they they dress in flamboyant garb with eye patches, floppy hats, and real big boots. Pirates. Okay, I've got a I've got a good list here that breaks everything down into one line. We've got okay. booty hunter. They catch folk who need to be caught. So I I didn't realize that that was like it was bounty hunter they were doing. Crass being they make stuff. Gadabout they yeah. explore map and name stuff. Gangsta they do crime. Goon they hurt people for money. Ham they entertain and seek attention. Hocus poker they do magic. Point they guard stuff and prevent crime. Holy Roller, they do religion. Lashmaster, they keep slaves in line. Obsessed, they are dedicated to a crazy cause. Oldster, they study old stuff. Pedalmeister, they sell they sell and trade stuff. Pedon, they do crappy work. Pimp, they pimp. Prisocorn, they do pirate things. Slaves, they do what others want. Slickster, they trick people. Smellcaster, they create magic smells. Snoot, they get to be rich. Uh, Tail Talker, they tell stories. Weirdo, they create magic goodies. And Weisenheimer, they do smart stuff. I am leaning towards Oldster. Oldster. 
Let me read the blurb on Oldster. The ruins of ancient civilizations are pretty thick on the ground. Most of them are too destroyed to learn anything of use from them, but occasionally artifacts, relics, and other historical objects are uncovered. Oldsters are collectors and studiers of such things. They work closely with historians and gadabouts to form museums and reliquaries dedicated to the study and discovery of these valuable remnants of ancient societies. Most prized, of course, are relics of the human race, many of which can be found under guard at the Museum of Antiquities and Obscurities in New Uralquar. So it belongs in a museum. Indiana Crawley. I am kind of drawn to being a holy roller, though. Like a like a, a cleric, uh, a pontificator. Yeah, because I know there's also like crazy religions in this game. Yeah, many crazy religions. It can be the like Church of Jebus or whatever. So is that what we're going with? Uh, I mean, I gotta say, Crawley being a sort of a, a a cleric of some kind. I feel like that's that's some appropriate naming. I think I think I'm gonna um, I think I'm gonna be the oldster. All right, I'm be the oldster. I, the whole thing about like the very thing that I started with about like well who was who was first to rise? It's like that's that's a I can base the whole that's character the on that. That's the question. That's the question that Crawley wants answered. Oh, no, he wants the answer to be Croaches. He's got a bias. Ah. He's gonna so, hit anybody. He's gonna smack anybody who tells him different with uh, his new, his rolled up newspaper, his fly swatter, and his bug spray. Hell yeah! All right. So with that, we have completed step one of character creation for low life Crawley the Oldster Croach, and we'll continue next time. All right, well, uh, we gone pretty long, so if you want to get in touch with us, see, po see when we post new episodes or, uh, you know, follow us, just uh, check us out on Facebook, Comparing Campaign on Facebook. If you want to see our show notes and supplemental materials, check us out on comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. We've got pictures of maps and doodles and everything. And uh, which Croach has uh, only got two arms? Not mine! Hashtag not mine. See you folks in the city of New Uralquar, just head holewards towards the Keister of God.